We live in a constantly connected world, yet people have never felt more disconnected. You're listening to Bullyproof, a podcast to shine a spotlight on workplace bullying, today's silent epidemic. Research indicates that 75% of workers will either be a target, witness bullying, or both. Each episode will explore how targets can bullyproof themselves and how leaders and HR can bullyproof their organizations. It's time to find your roar. Now, here's your host, Marilise de Villiers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Pacifico, Chief Learning Officer at PCA, which is an award-winning global specialist in highly immersive and experiential learning for leaders across all levels, sectors, and geographies. Adam is also a barrister, author of The Leader's Secret Code, opinion columnist, and host of The Leadership Enigma. Adam, welcome. I'm so delighted to have you with me today. Thank you very much. Me too. I've been looking forward to this, so I appreciate it. We've been speaking about this for a while, and you know, I'm, yeah. I'm really so curious about knowing more about you and your story, and, 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 and really what sort of sparked your passion for human-centered leadership. Yeah, wow, it's a, it's a hell of a journey. So I suppose it's an interesting subject because as we're in now lockdown number three, um, I think it's that kind of a difficult equation, isn't it? Because we're not allowed to be near people, but we're going to talk about human-centered leadership. So we all crave that human proximity at some point. Uh, I've had a very strange, unique background. I don't know, you decide. So I became a barrister a trial lawyer, quite young, 21, just turning 22, so perhaps too young. And I prosecuted and defended in the criminal courts. And then after about four years, and oddly, I became a cop. So I became a police officer with the Metropolitan Police. And I spent six very happy years uh, as a cop. So I spent three years on the inter- or the proactive team. So I was with the robbery squad and the gang unit and the narcotics unit. Hence the goatee beard. That's my excuse. So I always, I always stick to that. Uh, And that was great. You know, that was wonderful. It was poacher turned gamekeeper. I was now arresting the people that I'd maybe been defending uh, as a trial lawyer. So after six years, I went back to the law and I became a prosecutor. I was still a barrister. I'm still a barrister now. I've never let my my legal status, professional status wane because it's part and parcel of of who I am. But I think I'd been exposed to experiential learning uh, during my time with the police and during my time with uh, law. And so I started to kind of experiment with that to see what I could do for the corporate world. And long story short, uh, I moved into executive education and I was the managing director at one of the big business schools for four years uh, based in London. And then I had my own consultancy and then I moved to PCA as the chief learning officer. So I think the red thread has always been experiential learning, you know, something that's really quite visceral. So whether it was me in a mock courtroom or having petrol bombs thrown at my head as a cop or who knows but that's always kind of made me very very focused on experiential learning strange background i know it's weird it's right incredibly interesting and i and i think that's the that's the beauty of it you know i've come to learn um over the years that everything in life happens for a you know for a reason um a blessing or a lesson and i've always sort of questioned career choices or life choices and then eventually you know you can you can connect the dots um, Steve Jobs used to say you can't connect the dots going forward you have to trust that it's going to connect 
um, you know, um, going look, looking backwards. So I think it's important that we embrace every experience. And you've had such a colourful, um, you know, past in terms of all the different types of environments that you've you've worked in, which makes you so well positioned today to really embrace this whole concept of human centred leadership. So, so what does that mean to you? What does human centred leadership mean to you? And uh, you know, that's a great question. It is something I think I've been focused on for some time but hadn't really put a label to it it was only more recently that I've started to call human-centered leadership exactly that and, and my research is continuing it probably goes back to when I was doing the research and writing for my book the leader secret code and with that we did a huge amount of research whether that was online uh, a kind of assessment research we were talking to iconic leaders uh, from very, very different sectors, whether that was law, whether that was a, a world-class ballerina, a Michelin star chef, a Royal Marine. it was we, we went and found the most eclectic group that we could. And I think through all my experiences within law and law enforcement and the corporate world uh, and all of this research, without a doubt, a red thread emerged. But I don't think I quite appreciated what it was until I was at the book launch. You remember those days when you could actually be in the room with other people? Well, the book launch was the November just before the first lockdown. And there were about 100 people there, and it was very exciting. And in front of everyone, someone uh, from the audience asked questions, and someone said to me, Adam, what was your greatest learning, or what's the standout red thread for you with all of the research and the writing? And for a millisecond, I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to say? But actually, the answer was quite instantaneous. And out of my mouth popped human-centered leadership. Because without a doubt, from all the experiences that I've had with all of the privilege that I've had of working with large corporates and leaders all over the world, and with the research and the writing that we did for the book, there were a team of us, there were four of us who were the authors of that book. What stood out was not technical competence, and I've relied on technical competence as a trial lawyer, but this was about that human-centered approach to everything. And as we become more experienced and we become more senior, we perhaps have to dial up on our ability to be truly human-centered and we have to be comfortable in letting go maybe the technical wisdom and expertise that we had that got us maybe there in the first place. So it's finding that balance. So human-centered leadership is an approach for me for 2021 uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Wonderful. And I, and I, and I love, you know, um, I, I have various mentors, but one of them always say, um, the thinking that got you here and the skills and the capabilities that got you here are not going to get you there. And I think that's so critical when it comes to leadership because you, you get to a leadership position often because of your technical capabilities, but then to truly step into the shoes of a leader, then you have to develop those interpersonal skills and the human skills. And I think that's when you know it becomes really important to, to transition um, properly from I'm the expert in the room, you know, yeah. to actually becoming that sort of person who who, who, who lift other people up and who challenge and support other people to become the best version of themselves. And that, that's very true. You know, we enterprise leadership has been around for a while. You know, as we move through uh, from our silo, our department, our division, our expertise, and as you become more senior, that you become that enterprise leader across the entire gambit of the business. And that's really tough. You know, we do a lot of work in professional services. So the, the best lawyer or the best accountant or the best engineer or the best pilot, do they become the best leader? Not necessarily without a lot of work on themselves in order to make that transition from the expert, the best in class, 
to that more enterprise leader, as you say, and then starting to really dial up on the human-centered capabilities that they need in order to empower others. Because you can only do so much as an individual, and we work for a large organization. One person can do a lot, but only so much. Absolutely, and we are stronger together. So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into um, resilience today, personal resilience, because I think that is such an important component of leadership and how you show up as a leader and your own personal resilience. Um, so can you can you say a little bit more about your take on resilience? Yeah, do you know what? It's strange. People think that because I was a trial lawyer and I sometimes saw the very worst and the very best of people, and then I was a police officer where... You know, I had to deal with some pretty traumatic incidents. You know, we had to deal with, unfortunately, with with death in quite violent circumstances. And again, the best and worst of humanity, that some may think that I was naturally resilient because of what I've been through. And actually, if I'm critical, it's probably one of the things that I find the most difficult. And sometimes I question myself as to why I'm not more resilient. So it's always work in progress. But I think it's work in progress for everybody. And there are many definitions of resilient. Uh, resilience came up as one of the core beliefs uh, in the research for the book, but also I'm doing some work as well, some, some uh, video work in relation to resilience. And what is it? I, there's nothing formal about me. So it's kind of dusting yourself down and getting back up. That is, in essence, what really personal resilience is all about. Uh, and one of the core beliefs, we, we actually identified seven core beliefs of top performing leaders uh, through the research. And one of them was resilience. An actual belief was that I'm able to withstand tremendous pressure and spring back into shape. Now, there are a number of ways of getting to that belief, but that was, in essence, the belief. So, look, there's no doubt that resilience, both personally and organisationally, is essential. And boy, oh boy, are we going through a crisis now, an unprecedented, although I've tried to ban that word, an unprecedented crisis in relation to really trying to manage and be aware of our own personal resilience. Because the whole world is going through a shared experience of a global pandemic, but the pandemic is having a deeply personal impact on each and every person that I speak to, which is challenging their own personal resilience. So, uh, you know, it's kind of dusting oneself down and getting back up and going again. And I think that's so important because I think it's a normal, it's, 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 it's a human experience. You know, we always read all these literature about resilience in the context of trauma and tragedy, you know, but actually, as you said, it's about that continued pressure that we experience on a day-to-day basis, especially in a work context. And it's how do you navigate that and accepting that there are going to be tough challenges, um, but accepting that, you know, if you, if you come with a, with a, with a mindset um, and with, with armed with your kind of, you know, your, your high-performance habits, as I call them, then you will um, be able to navigate um, any sort of tough situation. You hope. Yeah, well. Learning um, all the time. (laughs) You've only got to speak to any world leader, and I think they'll tell you that they're learning every day in relation to how do they navigate and, and I think that's crucial because I think you've said it earlier, it's about we're all work in progress. We're always a work in progress. And I think yeah. it's, it's just human nature to to fall and to have to get back up again. And and and, and I think, you know, there's there's a lot of shame attached to that, you know, especially if you if we if you sort of veer into the the realm of um, toxic work environments, you know, where you you yeah. perhaps have a situation where you're dealing with uh, with a narcissist or a 
you know, bully as I call them. Yeah. And and you might you might find that really difficult to to navigate. Um, and and I love what you talk about above the line and below the line behaviors. And so I want to explore that a little bit because I think that's really interesting. Sure. Well, one of the things I'm passionate about is something I've called the role of the role model. And this all really has fed into the work that I'm continuing to do around human-centered leadership. I mean, we need positive role models more than ever. And we need to hold ourselves as positive role models now, uh, wherever we are, you know, within a family setting, within a work setting. And I work with loads of leaders and they say to me, well, you know, is this relevant to me? Because I don't have any direct reports. I'm still at a level where I'm an individual contributor. And I say to people, yeah, this is so important to everybody within an organization. We are all role models from the CEO to the newest intern. And I say to people, listen, every day, whether it's virtual or when we get back to -to face-to-face, in every day you are engaging with people, influencing people, persuading, empowering, uh, and leading people over which you have no direct authority. So you're a role model. So this is really, really important that we kind of really get to get to grips with this. I've just actually forgotten the question that you asked me now, which is a classic for me, isn't it, really? Really great. Um, um, I wanted to uh, sort of delve a little bit deeper. Above the line, below the line. Of course you did, yes. Yes, yes. There you go. <laughs> so, no, so with that, we do a lot of work. With, I know it's, it sums up the virtual experience, doesn't it? Uh, you know, it's something, we're doing a lot of work with companies in relation to how do people live their own personal purpose and organizational values on a day-to-day. So there are behaviors that will support those values and there are behaviors that will undermine those values. And I think everybody's got to go through a process of really starting to identify tangibly what are those behaviors that support and undermine. Listen, we're all human. I think it's it's obvious when, when behavior is completely inappropriate, it's kind of that black or white. I think we probably don't need to talk about that. It's obvious and, and it's inappropriate and it's not acceptable and it needs to be dealt with. But what I sometimes talk to people about is the ever-expanding gray area where you find yourself behaving in a way that is inconsistent with the values or in some way you haven't quite understood the impact on another person, not through mischief, not through deliberate mischief, but just through the day-to-day exigencies and almost working automatically and instinctively, we do always say something which has had an impact which we didn't intend and it's taken us below the line. And that's what I mean by above the line and below the line. You know, there's the very obvious, but then there's the the more subtle. And I think we can all fall below the line because we're human. But what's important is that we have psychological safety within a working environment whereby we can hold ourselves accountable, but other people can hold ourselves accountable too. And actually say, Adam, you you just did or you just said, are you aware of? And it's a nudge to say, I didn't know, you're absolutely, you're quite right. Thank you for reminding me of that. And I can pull myself above the line as fast as possible. And so there's a real accountability piece there, but there's a real piece about we're there to help each other. There's a real humanity piece to this too. Uh, about we individually and collectively have to live and breathe the values that we work so hard to promote within within all otherwise they're just words on a wall um so this is also heavily linked to personal purpose but that's what i mean by above the line and below the line supportive and undermining and i think it's important because um if you take the if you take the importance of that sort of psychological safety and then put it into context i mean if i look at my research that i did where i've specifically focused on toxic toxic environments where you had situations where people were being bullied. Yeah. 
it was it was very very obvious that that psychological safety was missing and yeah. people were people were afraid to speak up yes. and and i think that you hit the nail on the head there in terms of you know the accountability personal accountability to yes. not just um put your hand up and say you know i was out of line but actually for the individual that has been targeted yeah to actually have that confidence to say you know this is this is not on adam you you should not have well not in an accusatory way which is what i've just done um obviously you've got to think about how you approach the conversation looking sad now (laughs) 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 you were not the first person who told me off today that's fine i I mean i agree with you you know i i I think there's the police officer you know they say you can take the boy out the police but not the police out the boy which is probably true and I have always had quite a, a visceral reaction to a bully. Uh, I really don't like bullies and bullying behaviour. Maybe in, in essence, that's why I became a cop for a number of years. Maybe it's in essence why I perhaps gravitated towards prosecuting more than defending. And it's just inappropriate. And you know what? I was given a brilliant piece of advice many, many years ago where someone said to me, don't tolerate brilliant jerks. So you may have the, the, the best salesperson in the business, but that person is toxic. That person is a bully. Don't tolerate brilliant jerks because that toxicity, and you know better than I do with your research, actually starts to catch hold. And it just starts to erode all of the good work and the positive work and the values. That It's got to go. It, it's almost you have to cut that out and you have to let it go. But you have to be brave because if that's your top seller, but that top seller is your toxin, it takes some bravery to say, no, that, that's not who we are. Those are not the values that we live by and we will thrive on. And so there is the exit lounge. So I know that's tough. It's easier said than done, right? Do, do you, from your experience, do you see more, more organisations tolerating those brilliant jerks or actually dealing with it? I, I think there's more dealing with it now. It's not easy, but I think it's now we're more aware I think we're having the conversation now about what is appropriate. We're understanding diversity and inclusivity more. By the way, I flip it. I always talk about inclusivity leads to diversity and diversity of thought. It's not a tick box. It's exercise. If you get real diversity, you get transformational change. And so I think a lot of organizations are looking at it now, but there is the difficulty of how to deal with it, how to have a critical conversation, how to sometimes make a difficult decision with the human-centered lens to still understand, to still be fair, to still try and be objective, but to make the right decision, make the right call, but still have that human-centered approach to it. Uh, and that's not easy. Absolutely, because then if, if we link it with resilience, if you if you link it to the individual that's being targeted, for, ex- for example, so let's say we have a brilliant jerk and you have the individual being targeted, we're putting a lot of onus on that individual to be resilient. Yes. And and I I always look at the um, the way organisations promote personal resilience as a performance measure, but it's all the onus is on the individual. Yeah, it's a team sport. Uh, yeah, it's got to be a team sport. You know, one of the one of the seven I, there were seven components of human centred leadership. I, I, I talk for another day, but one of those is vigilance, and it's about us as leaders being vigilant and picking up on the weak signals or all or, or the very very clear signals that someone actually needs help because it cannot just be the individual's responsibility. It it has to be a team sport. There has to be the power of the collective. Uh, And when we're dealing with someone or uh, an issue which is 
wholly wrong, wholly inappropriate, or is the toxin, it, it can't just be up to one person. It may be the person who has to make the final decision, but that's where I think uh, values are so important in kind of giving a North Star when you're trying to navigate through a, a complex matter. Yeah, absolutely. So when a company is living and breathing its values, what does that look and feel like? Well, I think, you know, it, it, it's, we're talking about culture. Yeah. And we do a lot of work with culture. People say, well, what is culture? And it's the smell of the place. Yes. Uh, and well, there are some wonderful examples of there's that massive, there's a wonderful video, isn't there, from the LBS yeah. professor who explains it wonderfully, whether it's the forest of Fontainebleau or downtown. It's, it's, it really is wonderful. Well, I will actually post that in the, in the show notes because with, it's a brilliant video. It, yes, it yes. is brilliant. Um, I don't think he's with us anymore. It was, it's a little old, the, the footage, but I think it's wonderful in relation to that. So we're really talking about culture and we're not just talking about what we see and what we hear. We're talking about dominant logic. So some of those things that are almost underneath the surface that, you know, are believed to be true, even if they're not true. And so it's important that really organisations live and breathe those values in order to have that absolutely inclusive and powerful culture that so many want. And, you know, we really do want that culture of inclusivity, you know, within an organisation, because I think that's almost a critical ingredient. It's a differentiator for many. Uh, but it comes to living and breathing values. You know, I've done some work with organisations who have spent a lot of money on wonderful values and they're emblazoned all over the walls and they're on their TV screens and they're on their documentation. And the problem is um, no one really understands what those values mean on a day-to-day basis because they haven't gone through a process of understanding what are the tangible behaviours day-to-day for me that support those values and what are the behaviors that undermine those values and if you haven't really gone through any kind of process to define that you don't really know whether you're actually above or below the line sometimes you know I'm not again I'm not talking about the the obvious but we really need that clarity to know that we're living the values on a day-to-day basis so those organizations who have gone that extra couple of steps and allowed people to really understand what supports what's above what undermines what's below, find that they are creating a culture where people are living the values on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's a differentiator. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back to your point around psychological safety, comes back to uh, creating honest, transparent type of cultures where people can really speak up and they really feel comfortable um, to have a difficult conversation, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. And, and psychological safety was, you know, the, from the Google research, which is which everyone can, can see for themselves, you know, psychological safety was the top of the five key ingredients for a high-performing team, you know, and having that culture for that team to thrive. And so psychological safety is, is something that I know a lot of organisations are proactively working on, and we're helping them work on that, because whether it's a, you know, a, a team of two, a team of 20, a team of 200, a team of 2,000, it doesn't matter. You want that psychological safety for exactly those conversations to be absolutely okay and absolutely appropriate in order to make sure that you're keeping that culture uh, protected. Brilliant. Love it. And, and, and what would you say is the kind of key difference? You know, if you take an individual, let's say the individual is in an environment um, where very, very fast pace, you know, highly, highly strong, um, perform, perform, perform. And yeah. that's, just, that's just how it is, right? So what do you think is the difference between a high performer and someone getting immobilized by yeah. sort of pressure? 
It's a, it's a great question. I'll, I'll go back to some of the research. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll go back to some of the research that we did for the book because we said that one of the key uh, beliefs of top quartile leaders was this belief around resilience to dust themselves down and to spring back. And there were two journey motivators or two routes to that. And one of them is working hard. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse my voice. So one of them is working hard um, and one of them is working smart. Uh, and the working hard is that classic when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Uh, and there's that degree of importance of I'm just going to keep working harder and, and later and longer in order just to drive through that, uh, that challenge. And the working smart are the ones who are seeking new ways to address the challenge uh, and how do they have to integrate that into their day-to-day leadership practice. Now, I'll just pause there because one of the most important things to this is it's not one or the other, but it's actually finding the balance between the two. Because if you think about working hard, uh, you know, you can look at people like J.K. Rowling, who, you know, world famous now, but I mean, she hit rock bottom. So boy, oh boy, did she work hard in order to get from uh, that that place of, of <laughs> which she felt she couldn't go any lower to now being the person that she is. Uh, And there are some things that are associated with people who work hard. Uh, And I'm kind of using some of my notes as well here. So it's about being persistent, uh, strong-willed, brave, stubborn, immovable. And sometimes they're also easily fatigued because it's that kind of head down, go, go, go. And but the thing to be, you know, to be mindful of is, you know, we're culture carriers as well. So if you have a leader who is work hard, just I'll do it all myself more and more. I'll just work 24 hours a day. People pick up on that and start to replicate it. They start to mirror it. So that's the culture you'll create, which is not really going to get you through uh, those challenging times, especially on an organizational level, because you've got to rest and replenish and you've got to recharge, you've got to think, you've got to plan. So you've also got to find that balance to, uh, you know, working smart. Uh, And when we talk about working smart, we're talking about people who are uh, expressive, they're optimistic. They're decisive, they're restless, but they're also empowering to other people because they'll empower the collective. So it's a combination of the two. It's not only work hard. It's not only work smart because anyone who has achieved something will tell you they've had to work hard in order to get to where they are. But there's a balance. So it probably won't surprise you that out of all of the research we did, every single belief had a, a, a score of 20 And it was like a scale. Where are you on the score of 20? And out of work hard and work smart, you're probably not going to be uh, surprised to hear that work smart scored higher. It was 16 to 4, 16 to 4, smart and hard. So it's finding that balance between the two, which is perhaps critical now for leaders, especially in the current environment where things are changing on such a a day-to-day basis. It's quite overwhelming. Sorry, that was a long answer. It's fantastic and I love it. And I think every, for what comes to mind for me is actually the power of the mind in terms of that mindset that um, you, you know, when you, when you work smarter, it, it, for, for me, feels like it's a more can-do growth type mindset. Yeah. If you work harder, your mind is in a very, very different place. And sometimes you've got to, as you say, but it's, it's also checking that conversation that's going on in your head and making sure that you catch any of those sort of negative, self-deprecating thoughts that, we, that sort of often creep in, right? Yeah. I mean, the biggest critic sometimes is in here. Yeah, absolutely. And easier said than done to say, snap out of it, pull yourself together, 
That's not so easy, right? Um, and we're, we're finding that at a moment. I, I'd love to, I'd, let me just read you a quote, if I may. If I wrote this down, I, I, I had a wonderful quote from one of the CEOs that I interviewed for the book. And, and I'll read it to you because I think it was great. It kind of proves the point. And, and she's a very, very strong leader and, and someone I admire greatly. And this was good. I read it. She said, you need to go into the office every single morning and believe what you are doing is right no matter what's thrown at you, and that you'll navigate the business through it. So you've got to be the constant in a whole sea of movement and uncertainty. People will always look to you. They'll seek your guidance. They'll look at the expression on your face every single day. And whoever you're feeling, you're going to have to stay absolutely confident in what you're doing. And she went on to say this, and I love this. She says, I learn from every challenge. I constantly seek it out. It makes me feel alive and makes me grow. And I thought that was a wonderful, easier said than done. Yes. But it was a wonderful quote as well in relation to her view of the resilient leader. I just wanted to share that with you. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. Thank you. And so what um, what are your sort of three top tips for developing personal resilience? You talked earlier, you talked about rest and recharge. Um, and so <laughs> what, what do you do to develop your personal resilience? And what can you well, sort of share? Yeah, I can't tell you how disappointed I am that gyms are shut and I can't get on a tennis court. But that, that's that, less about me and my... Um, but that's what recharges me, without a doubt. And, and I get a lot of, I get a lot of uh, joy, actually, from my family. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I lost my mum early last year and I, ha- I have my dad is still around which is great so actually family's really important no no thank you you know family's really important actually so I do get a, a lot of yeah I do get a lot of energy from that friends family it's that collective isn't it and one person is just one person but when we're a family of four oh and the dog can't forget the dog and then the wider family and your friends I think that is that is energizing but it was a really great question and you gave me some warning of this and I thought about it and I and I wrote three things down and this is still for me work in progress. I do not hold myself as I am the, no. So one of them is really about personal purpose. What is my personal purpose? It's not about what I'm doing so much every day, but who am I being every day? I had a wonderful conversation with a, a, an executive who's working over within an Indian company. He spoke about, he really works hard on him as a human being not just a human doing. And I thought that was wonderful advice. And I think when we have a strong personal purpose, just like good, strong values, it acts as a North Star. It acts as that compass through chaos or through a dilemma or through an ethical dilemma. That strong personal purpose, I think, is is something to to work on. We all need to work on that. And, And that's one of my kind of resolutions for 2021 is to think about who am I as a human being not just a human doing. What do I need to do? Yeah, fine. Put that to one side. How will I be as I'm doing it? Um, the second one is, in some ways, was captured by that quote, and that's to fail forward. Don't fear failure. Failure is data. Failure is learning. I spent some time before the pandemic days, a couple of times, I was lucky enough to go quite regularly to Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley is, we all know, many, many startups. And I'm not suggesting that is the only place for startups to to, to turn into unicorns. But there was definitely a culture there of what I would describe as phoenix from the ashes. From abject failure, great learning took place. And from that learning, the, the companies then would rise and become perhaps some of the iconic companies that we know now. But they started through abject failure. 
And so thoughtful risk-taking and psychological safety and people feeling safe to fail in order to learn and move forward, I think is, is really important. So that's the second one. And then the third one, really, I suppose comes back to the essence of human-centered leadership, because two of the components are humility and also being vulnerable. And I think sometimes when we're dealing with something that is challenging, if we're just dealing with it by ourselves, that is tough. Just as you said of the, the person who maybe is the target of the behavior, it can't just be on them. There's got to be accountability in a wider way for it. And I think it's also about the humility and vulnerability at every level to say, I, I need some help and need some advice and need some support. And in some ways, many senior leaders find that quite difficult because they may feel that they have to have all of the answers. No one's got all the answers. And I've seen some amazing, and I've, I've spoken to and interviewed some CEOs who I would say were unbelievably humble, had an element of vulnerability because of the stories that they shared with their organization about their own personal challenges. And without a doubt, it made them stronger. But I also think it allows them to navigate challenge and also to overcome resilience because they understand the power of the collective and a lot of the times you know I found this when I was dealing with some really difficult cases either as a, as a cop or as a trial lawyer that on many occasions when you ask for help someone else has had an experience has already been through something where they can support and help you and guide you and you're not kind of working from scratch because there's someone to say actually, I've, I've experienced this, let me help you. So that would be my third one, is, is that humility and vulnerability to say, I need some help. So be more, do less, fail forward, and ask for help. So it's the personal purpose, yeah, yeah. so the personal purpose with the North Star, yeah, don't fear the failure, and ask for help. It's that humility and vulnerability, do not fear that. In some ways, it's linked to number two. I hope that's useful. That's amazing. I love that. And it's amazing how um, consistent um, it is with some of my um, aspirations for 21, especially the first one around personal purpose and um, doing less and, and, and being more. So being a human um, yeah. more and, and embracing who, who I am and, uh, you know, just the beauty of the presence and enjoying family, as you say, and, and, and COVID, I think, has been a great reminder or wake-up call in, in many ways uh, to, 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 to see what's important in life. Well, we'll be each other's accountability partner this year for <laughs> the, the being as opposed to the doing. I love that. And, and that's a really important point, Adam. I think accountability is really what, at the end of the day, makes a huge difference in terms of actually implementing some of the stuff that we've talked about. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today and it was a fascinating conversation. I'm sure our listeners and our viewers are going to absolutely love this. Um, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Uh, well, they can find me. Um, I'm Adam Pacifico on LinkedIn. I use, I use LinkedIn a lot. Uh, obviously, they can find me through PCA, just PCA Global or PCA Law. We're, we're the same thing. I'm, so I'm the CLO there. We're based in London. Uh, but LinkedIn, yeah, well, I think between that and, and LinkedIn is probably the, the best routes to get hold of us. Fantastic. And also the podcast. Listen to that. The Leadership Enigma. Oh, that's an amazing <laughs> podcast, everybody. So The Leadership Enigma and also the book, The Leader's uh, Secret Code. Leader's Secret Code. Adam, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time with you today. You take care. Thanks very much indeed. Hope it was helpful. 
Join us again next time for more essential insights and practical tips on the Bullyproof podcast. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with Marilise on social media or via her website, www.marilise-de-billiers.com. Don't forget to review and rate this show on iTunes. Thanks for listening.